0: Welcome to the Bold SLP Podcast. We are so happy that you're here and can't wait to share with you all of the amazing conversations we've been having.
1: We are the co-founders of the Bold SLP Collective, and we are also your hosts, Lisa, Desi, and myself, Ingrid. Each of us has a variety of experiences in all things bilingual and bimodal speech-language pathology. You'll get to know us pretty well on here.
2: We started this podcast to share our lived experiences, but also because we want to bring advocacy and cultural humility to the forefront of every speech therapy conversation. We hope that you'll join us each week, and we hope that you enjoy this episode.
1: On this episode, we talk all about money and tell you exactly how much debt we graduated with and what it took for all of us to get rid of our debt. Uh, We start with Lisa. She was having some audio issues on this episode, but um, she does say that her and her husband both had a lot of debt going out of grad school and her main strategy was using the money she could make in private practice to aggressively pay down her loans and you get to hear a little bit of her perspective in the following segment. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Bold SLP podcast. Lisa and I are here today. We are talking all about money after grad school. Uh, A lot of you guys have sent in your comments and your questions about how we're paying for our student loans, Um, and we wanted to of breach that subject honestly and as transparently as possible because we both have different student loan journeys. Um, Lisa, how's it going?
0: It's going great. I'm so <laughs> happy that we're discussing this because I didn't know that so many other students or post-grads were in debt like me, but I was deep, deep in debt, me and my husband.
1: Yeah, it almost seems like we felt like we were the only ones in the program that we were at. And then we didn't really talk about it during school. At least for mm-hmm. me, I never talked about money with my cohort. Uh, and then I kind of like took that outside of grad school and never talked about money and student loans until this year.
0: No, I, and I, am when I would go out with friends so stressed about it. Like every dollar I would spend, I would think, oh, this could be going towards the student loans, which is not the healthiest way to live because you still want to balance, you know, the good stuff and the loans. But for me, some of my culture helped me with paying off these student loans. One of them being not going out to restaurants. So to me, going to a restaurant was a luxury. It wasn't like an everyday thing. I wouldn't just like pick up a coffee or get some quick fast food none of that like all of my meals were made at home just a bit of rice some vegetables some curry like would save me like a good 20 dollars you know when you think of tip and if you want to drink and like little things like that was the start of my journey with paying off the student loans uh, more is
1: this like during grad school or after or both
0: oh my goodness During during grad school I learned just to go back to grad school, I learned that that like, the unlimited meal plan was like such a waste of money. So I I
1: remember meal plans. I only did it one year, my freshman year when it was mandatory to live in the dorms. Yeah, yeah. And then I was like, like you, this isn't worth it. It wasn't even food that I liked. The only Mm -hmm. thing that I liked was the omelets in the morning. That was it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. They had these grilled sandwiches that I liked because we never had that at home.
1: Um, but but I love of- that you mentioned that, Lisa, because it is true. Like, we're already used to being uh, frugal, I feel, in yeah. terms of, like, uh, the experience of being immigrants. M- myself, like, I'm thinking of my own experience. Like, people would really struggle even to move year after year. You know, when we lived in apartments and you had to move out. I'm like, I've done that all my life.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I know yeah.
1: how to keep things very minimal. Um, I remember a big shock for me when I shared a dorm with someone. She filled her entire side of her closet to the brim. And I literally had like two pairs of pants, a, like three shirts, a couple of sweaters, and then some PJs and workout stuff. Like literally like super like, you know, like now we call it minimal or Scandinavian or <laughs> Marie Kondo, only like my favorite things that I like sacrificed over the summer to like go buy at American Eagle. I literally could fit everything in my little tiny car.
0: I love that because the truth is you really don't need that much. You, you don't. don't need that much. That's really the take-home message right now is that you don't need that much. But to go outside of food and saving here and there. Um, we have the knowledge now and the skill set after our master's to see private clients. So that, that is one thing that really helped me aggressively pay these student loans. Because yes. the government jobs and the, the security and whatever it is you're looking for, they, they pay almost nothing. And it takes a long, t- a long time to get through those student loans. And you want to live, you know, you don't want all into loans. You need, you need some savings. So that is something to keep in mind not just use all of your money on paying off your loans and, you know, not eating, not sleeping, not anything. You want to have this like good work-life balance. Um, I was telling you Ingrid before that paying the minimum is great. If it's all you could do, then do that. But you don't end up paying much off your student loans if you're only paying the minimum. So pay as much as you can where you have a little bit that you could save, even if it's like $10 a month. Just to mm-hmm. start, just to start saving, because you never know, you never know when you're going to need that money. And to you pay it off to the loan, you can't get it back. It's you know? true.
1: And I think my biggest thing, uh, I'm looking down at my notes, my biggest thing was don't ignore your loans, because mm-hmm. I know it gets really overwhelming. Uh, and I did that for a little bit. Not that I didn't pay them, just I tried to pretend they didn't exist and just hope for the best. Yeah. And I ended up uh, finding myself making more money and not realizing that the repayment plan I was in mm. would come by, back and bite me. And I remember it was like year three of my career and my payments went from like 180 to like $700 one January. Because <gasps> they had seen how much, you know how every year you, ha- well here in the US you have to show how much money you make um when you're in an income-based repayment plan okay oh
0: okay no and I
1: remember I had just had a baby I was not paying attention I didn't realize Mm
0: -hmm. that we had
1: made that much more money as a family that it would affect me that much like I thought okay 50 more dollars or whatever oh excuse me but it was literally like unsustainable to go from $150 $150 payment in December to a 700 something dollar payment in January. And like you said, it was on auto pay. That money was gone. It was
0: gone. So the yeah. first part we talked about not needing to. Second big point is pay attention. Pay so attention. get your spreadsheets out. Know how much your, your rent or mortgage costs per month. Know how much you're paying in student loans. Get those documents that either you get in the mail or email to you if you need to print it out to really look at it know how much is leaving your account every month your bank account big in that moment it really really adds up. so you can budget for the fun things that you want to do so if yep. pay attention pay attention paying attention is huge it's yes. like you said getting a letter saying like you know you're going up by five dollars this month and you're going, you're gonna you're gonna do so well and pay it off so well that you don't know how much that adds up to at the end of the year but you do mm-hmm. see a clear a little spreadsheet saying this is going here, going here, and you see how much you actually have. Sometimes it's more than you think, but often it's less than you think because you only re- when you're waiting for a payment to come in.
1: Right, right. So, so yeah, I think paying attention, um, for me, it was also a source of shame that I had mm-hmm. gotten myself in that situation.
0: There's, there's the shame of being in debt, which I, I think is... A systemic problem for most of us of color because school is not cheap even though you made a smart choice with your school you're still deeply in debt I did yeah that and means- I only used my loans
1: for school like I came out with $33,000 of student debt because I didn't use those loans to live I just went straight to tuition I took the least that I could
0: I came then- out with 60000 000- in debt and I had so many grants and uh, no. grants, um, scholarships and with all those scholarships I still owed that much because I was in but I think student. you went to a private Did no a private? I went no. to a SUNY school no well
1: Texas wasn't that expensive and I'm that was a state school for me it was okay. six thousand dollars a semester six times five thirty in fees you know it was 33
0: I, it's because I was Canadian which I found hilarious because I had to drive one to cross the border to get to my school. But you had to pay the international. York... Yeah, but my friends in New York City drove six hours to get there. It's and really it something, eh? Hour. These these borders and... Uh...
1: I hope you enjoyed that short conversation, Lisa. We will definitely record another episode all about money. This one, we just wanted to focus more on the grad student experience in the grad loan debt but she has a lot of great insight on this next segment we talk about Desi and she shares her story
2: well I am excited to talk about this experience for myself because I in talking with you Ingrid I realized that I kind of went through three phases of grad school so My first introduction to graduate school was actually not in CSD, but I got a humanities degree. Um, And so for anyone out there thinking, oh, my gosh, you took out loans for two master's degrees. Nope. Hold your horses. I actually did not take out loans for my humanities degree. Um, A lot of programs in the humanities uh, will provide you with tuition remission. Um, and what that means is that you'll do a service for the department, such as teaching. I taught two courses a semester. Um, and because of that, they give you a stipend that you can live on <laughs> somewhat, um, and then health insurance. So that was um, the way that I got through my uh, literature degree at the master's level. So I we'll say that that was a completely different master's level experience than anything in CSD. Um, But of course the biggest uh, benefit for me in terms of finances was that I walked away from that experience without any debt. So I'm very grateful for that. Um, And that's when it became interesting because I started, you know, I I basically walked away from the humanities knowing I wouldn't go back. Um, it, It wasn't the right fit. And so when I started looking forward to what I was planning on doing, um, the idea of becoming a, an SLP came into my mind, and it's something that had kind of you know circulated in and out of my thoughts for many years. So in looking to doing the CSD master's degree, so which is really a pre-professional degree. Um, I had to consider taking post-baccalaureate courses so for anyone who's not familiar with it um, post-baccalaureate courses are sometimes called leveling courses it's all of the 300 and 400 level coursework that you take in order to be able to even apply to graduate programs or traditional graduate school programs that are two years long so I was very fortunate um, that I took my post-baccalaureate courses through uh, my alma mater, the University of Florida. And so I did that online. And the biggest uh, perk of being in this program, which is a perk that I didn't really um, realize wasn't a part of other programs, uh, is that I actually got to uh, pay my courses as I went so rather than having to pay a lot of money upfront to take two courses a semester, um, the University of Florida allowed me to pay like a fee for a hundred dollars each semester. And that allowed me to just put payments toward those courses throughout the course of the semester. So by the time that my course is finished, Uh, you know, let's say it was fall semester by the time December rolled around, I had to finish paying the courses and that actually gave me a lot of time um, because the courses were not super expensive. Um, They were reasonably priced. And so I was able to manage my husband and I were both not making very much money. We were living in Atlanta, Um, but somehow we, we made it work um, and we ended up paying Each semester off as I went through. So the last part of my three phases of grad school uh, was finally um, the graduate experience I had in communication sciences and disorders. So I knew that going into this grad school experience, uh, unlike my first grad school experience, it was not going to be just funded in any way necessarily. So what I ended up doing in preparation for that was to go into um, orientation for the program I ended up attending. So once I knew I was going to go there, I attended an in-person house or what's it called? Um, Open house. Open house. house. There you go. That's the word I was looking for. So an open house orientation, Um, you know, this obviously pre-COVID, so it was all in person. And then once um, that was once the, you know, their talk and their introduction ended, I approached the graduate coordinator who was present at the open house, and I actually directly asked them about getting a graduate intern uh, assistantship. Um, and so she didn't really have a whole lot to say to me at that point. Um, I'm not sure when those were kind of given out or, you know, at what point they were at in that decision making process. But she encouraged me to keep looking for other sources of funding. Uh, So because I had taught Spanish already um, and I had taught Spanish at um, my previous uh, in my previous graduate program, I actually asked about teaching Spanish at my university. Um, So. I approached the coordinator who um, scheduled the lower level Spanish classes, and we talked about it a little bit. Um, she recognized that students in graduate programs like CSD tend to be very busy. So, you know, that wasn't really too much of an opening for me. Um, that was kind of a a quick conversation, and it it wasn't really feasible. But I looked into other sources of funding, um, different programs that were uh, on campus, uh, different programs that were related, especially. Like there was a program uh, within the College of Ed that was geared toward supporting school age Latino students. And so they had different projects that one could apply for. And I applied for that. I didn't get it. But again, I think the fact that I kept trying. And that I kept my department informed that I was trying and this was something that I really was interested in eventually helped me because I think it was uh, June uh, before going into graduate school, my graduate program actually started in July, but um, it was that June before starting that I got notified that I did get a graduate assistantship so I really think it was mostly because I was so persistent and I kept the graduate coordinator in the loop about the ways in which I was trying to actually uh, pursue funding. And so I think that that was a really great benefit for me. Um, you know, the other thing I'd really encourage anybody who's out there to do is just really look into any sorts of funding possible. Whether it's, you know, Office of International Programs, any sort of office for, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, any sort of office that even if it's something that's completely unrelated, um, you know, or thinking about like work study options. I mean, I'd really think that if you're, if you want to make this happen, and you would like to make it happen for you at a reasonable, um, you know, at, so that you're that you graduate with a reasonable amount of loans you know, I'd really encourage you to pursue these options. And, you know, I know that something that Ingrid and I talked about before we started this conversation was that, you know, depending on the university, you know, you may or may not have access to those pots of funds. Um, But I think that it would be really great to maybe start your graduate search at, you know, and figuring out what percent of students receive some sort of graduate assistantship what percent of students receive some sort of departmental or college or graduate level funding um, that might be a good starting point before diving into a decision, you know, into deciding which graduate program to attend. Um, and then, like, finally, the other thing I really wanted to mention about graduate school, specifically like master's level CSD programs is You know, if there are things that you'd like to do within your program as well, like let's say you want to attend ASHA or you are part of a research project um, that, you know, may be presented on some sort of like at some sort of national convention um, to really ask your department to support you. Um, There are pots of money, potentially uh, different reserves that are dedicated to supporting students and faculty to travel and attend um, academic conferences. So that's something else to keep in mind. Um, there are, There is money out there. It's just sometimes it's spoken for or organized in such a way that, you know, you'd have to make sure to connect with the right people in order to, for that money to become accessible to you. So my biggest takeaway from my three phases of grad school are to definitely ask and to be inquisitive, be, to really be curious and go through, all of the information that you have available to you. The last thing that we were hoping to just chat about too is um, loans. So, uh, for the purpose of this episode, you know, I am happy to be transparent um, with my graduate assistantship and with the support of my husband, um, who worked uh, tirelessly um, in the background as I did graduate school um i was able to graduate with only $21,000 in debt which was uh, really you know manageable amount um you know compared to what most people have to take on so in looking at all of the different options i had for managing my loans after graduate school and managing repayment i ended up deciding to consolidate my loans so that's the process by which you take all the loans that you have and you go to some sort of bank, right? Um, Somebody who's a lender and you ask them to basically take on that debt and to consolidate it for you. In other words, rather than having four different loans at different interest rates, they're going to take all those loans and they're going to offer you one flat interest rate and you're going to pay it back to them rather than to the federal loaner that originally gave you that uh, federal loan. So I went with my local credit union and I ended up getting a rate of about 3.75, so significantly lower than the interest rates I had on my federal loans, which I think were about ranging between 7 and 8.5 at that time. Uh, So because of that low interest rate and because of the fact that my amount was so low, I was able to pay it off. In less than five years i also mentioned to ingrid that i also did spend you know if i had a chance to like put more money toward my loans i always did anytime that we had a bonus anytime that we had extra income for whatever reason if there was um, a family gift that may have come through it went to the loans there were very few months where i just paid the minimum balance so between that and um you know a gift from my mom in august of this past year i was able to finally make my loans go away um Yay. that's my story <laughs> that's awesome i didn't even know that it's like
1: a podcast exclusive
2: yes yeah no and it was great i the other thing i it, that was so special about it was that i was pregnant with my second son i mean in like 37 weeks pregnant <laughs> So um, in my mind, I had set a goal that I wanted to pay off my loans before he entered the world.
1: You're going to be scared to hear my money story. No, <laughs> You were so adult and so sensible.
2: I will <laughs> say, I actually, before we move on to your story, I wanted to say I was a, a full adult. I think that's another important thing that I needed to make sure I said as part of my story. Um, I was a working adult before going to, uh, do my post-bac before doing grad school. I I had worked full-time for several years. So, you know, it's definitely something that I learned over my, my adult life. It's not something that I would expect, uh, even my 22 year old self to have done. So, you know, for anyone out there who is, you know, feeling, young and inexperienced, you know, because you're, you know, maybe still an undergraduate or you're just graduating from, you know, being an undergrad, I would say, please don't think of it it, that way. Like you are doing just fine. And even just listening to this episode, you know, I'm hoping to give you a leg up because it's something that I definitely wouldn't have had at that same age. Um, So I'm glad you brought that up, Ingrid. I, I really hope people take this all with a big grain of salt. I was very, I was the oldest person in my graduate cohort for uh, communication sciences and disorders, like by several years.
1: (laughs) I'm a May baby. So every time I entered a school year, I was pretty much the youngest one. So we'll start there. I was really sensible in undergrad. I thought I was at a local school. Um, I got a waiver. It was out of state, but I got a waiver to get in-state tuition at New Mexico State. And I came out of there with 10 grand of loans. And I took a ton of classes, um, 18 to 21 credit hours every semester. I was just trying to absorb everything I could, double majored, like I was just young, had all this energy. And I thought 10 grand is not so bad. That loan, I paid off like that. My grad school loans, nuts so much. So my grad school loans, I took out six grand every semester. And that was four semesters in a summer. So I came out with about 33,000 of grad school loans, which, you know, now I'm thinking I should have done more research and not gone so far away from home, but I did. Um, And the thing that really crippled me about that is that I came out with like ten to twelve thousand dollars of credit card debt from grad school, just from trying to survive, and I and I didn't know that you could get funding. You know, I had a research assistantship my second year, and then before that, I was just kind of nannying here and taking in some hours at an audiology lab here and there, but I didn't know that you could actually like get. You know, all these benefits that you're talking about, Desi, like, I think it's so important to have that connection to someone in the program or just like some sort of savvy about how to navigate academia. Cause I didn't until my second year. And then by then, you know, you're just trying to get out of there as fast as you can. My biggest thing about loans is not to ignore them. I think I ignored them for way too long. And I did all the necessary things, you know, I knew when my forbearance would end when I graduated and all of that. But I think like for my first three years after I graduated, I just paid the minimum and ignored them because I wasn't making a lot of money. It was income-based repayment. And I think it was some of the months I was paying 50 bucks and it was great. Some of the months it was a hundred dollars. So I wasn't really working at paying them down. And I think when I finally like grew up a little bit more and I looked at my loans one day, like three years out of grad school, they had ballooned up to $45,000. Even though I was paying every month, you know, the 50, the 100, the 110, you know, depending on how much money I was making, I never missed a payment ever. So I was at least responsible enough to set up an auto pay and have an account where there was always money for my loans but just having that realization of like ignoring this problem for three years ballooned me up because of those interest rates that you were talking about that I never paid attention to. That was a big wake up call. Um, And that's when I consolidated. So I did the same as you. I consolidated and I paid a little bit more attention from then on. And I started taking my forgiveness very seriously. I was doing every year I would do that verification that employment verification every year I knew I was getting closer. Uh, and I learned through the years like what they were looking for in those applications. So when it came time to apply for my forgiveness, I knew that they weren't going to kick it back for a clerical mistake because I'd already made all those mistakes through the years, but I hit my 120 payment. Um, January of 2022 that was my 10 year mark and I looked and my loans had ballooned up to $66,000 and I never missed a payment and at the end I was paying like $415 a month because I was making more money and still my debt was growing and growing and growing and growing so That was my last, like, if these loans don't go away with this public service loan forgiveness, like, we were going to have to take out, like, a mortgage kind of a loan to just get them out of our lives. Um, But I applied for, for public service loan forgiveness in January 2022. I know I've talked about it on my page before that they came back and said, sorry, all those payments you made since you consolidated, they don't count. And I had a horrible, horrible time. I cried for weeks. I felt so demoralized. But then I realized something that I had saved those emails from when I consolidated. And I had asked, will this affect my public service loan forgiveness? And they had said no. And so I went and found a link on my services, servicers page where I could go complain And I complained and I said, I have proof that you told me seven years ago that this wouldn't affect me. And now you're saying that my loans can't be forgiven. So then I got another letter that said, oh yeah, we've looked at it. We readjusted. Now you only owe eight payments, which sounds like nothing, but eight times $420 a month. And then one day in March, I got an email and. I opened it, and it was from my Fed loan servicer, and it said they were gone out of the blue. That's amazing. They were gone, and I'm like, (laughs) it felt like a miracle, and it was a huge relief, and I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. Like, if I had to do it all over again, I would have paid them down aggressively or consolidated them into a credit union like you did, Desi, just a lower interest rate and chipped away because... I saw the difference those $10,000 from undergrad I paid them in three years it was a super low interest rate it was like 2.75 with Wells Fargo it was a private you know student loan and it was so manageable and it was gone like nothing and so I wish I wouldn't have looked away like those 33,000 seemed so scary that it was easier to just look away and like give out $50 here, $100 there, and then let them balloon up like that was a huge mistake. And I got really lucky that they're actually gone. But it took all these years. And it's really stressful. You can't, you know, I couldn't take an extended maternity leave because you have to meet those requirements. you got to work those 30 hours or more and have your employer verify that and if you take an extended maternity leave you're not going to meet that criteria for that year. So all those payments for the that year won't count towards your public service loan forgiveness. Like there was a lot of things that kind of kept me cooped up and it kept me from starting my own business. I was petrified and I thought of myself as an irresponsible person, a person who was not good with money. Like I would tell all my myself all these things and keep myself back because of my student loans. You know,
2: I was I wanted to say two things originally when you talked about how your loans were forgiven I was gonna say wow how magical (laughs) which is I'm sorry that's so messed up um I I'm sorry that I thought that because it's not magical like (laughs) you, you worked really hard and you know you you were promised something um you know in exchange for obviously like all these negative feelings you were feeling, you know, not delaying the start of your business, like even sacrificing time with your children, like this is wild, you know, the sacrifices that people who are hoping to get this loan forgiveness make. Um, And I feel like this isn't really discussed that much. So thank you for, you know, for really bringing that to my attention, like how much of yourself was consumed by it. Um, And I really wish that, this wasn't the case you know especially for people who sacrifice Mm and and you know at times like take a lower rate of pay even like lower quality of life in some cases potentially in order to make to meet these requirements Um, the other thing I wanted to comment was that if you're comfortable um, it's not a comment, actually, more so of a question. You know, you mentioned loans, but you also mentioned you had some kind of ballooning credit card debt from graduate school. And I suspect that this is the case for a lot of folks. I I, I did leave that out of my own personal um, story about my degrees. I did have quite a bit of credit card debt myself during the time when I did my master's, my first master's degree. Yeah. So. How did you tackle that? I mean, I'm happy to talk about how I did it myself, but I you comfortable.
1: Yeah, no, I, it's totally open. Um, I had five grand on my Target card and I laugh about it all the time. I tell people like, I used my Target card to pay for my utilities. Like, cause that Target visa was the only one that was like not overextended at the moment. But I had my... Southwest card that I used for gas, like to see if I could get a flight home with some points there, here and there. That was like $13, $1,700, like maxed at $1,700. And then I had my Target Visa maxed at five, and then a Bank of America card maxed at three or $3,500. And that one I used for like food and, you know, all those things. Um, and that's what I had to do, even though I was working in a research lab I was a research assistant I was nannying every weekend that I could and I was getting help from my parents to pay for my phone and my car insurance so those were the things that I had and then when I came out of grad school I was engaged to be married and we did marriage preparation and one of the sessions was lay out all your money and my husband owed nothing So he had just graduated from undergrad. He's an engineer. He owned his car and truck outright. They were older used cars that he bought cash. I had a brand new Volvo that I owed $19,000 on because I had to, you know, keep up. He had no credit card. He had like one Sears credit card with a $500 limit that his parents had taken out for him just for credit. And he had cash in the bank. (laughs) I'm like, not me. So from that marriage preparation class, like I laid out all my loans, all my cards, my car loan to him. He laid out his assets. I had no assets. And he said our first income tax return, we are paying now on those cards. And I think, so that's what we did with our first return. And then from then on, it was me working in the summers. That's how, Like it took a couple of years. I would do summer testing and I would do ESY. And then I took on that early intervention job and I would do PRN. And that's how I paid down the credit cards and the Wells Fargo loan. But my federal loans, like I said, I just ignored. Like they made me so angry. I felt so duped. I felt like every time I logged into that account, I just felt like a dummy. (laughs) So I just avoided it for so long. But yeah, that's what we did. What did you guys do?
2: Well, I had to just kind of dig myself out of the credit card hole a few times. Um, You know, thankfully, we have some better things in place now that we're more mature, but it took a while to get to that point. So I'm thinking back to um, when I first was in graduate school for my first master's degree, uh, I definitely used my credit card for uh, essential items and non-essential items. So groceries, um, I didn't have a car, um, which, you know, made it financially more feasible, but my quality of life was not as great because I, this was Charlottesville, Virginia. So you needed a car or you were taking the bus or, you know, trying to figure out some other alternative, you know, for getting around. Um, so anyway, I I eventually, when I graduated, it was mostly silly kind of debt um, that really was bringing me down. I obviously like I had some essentials that I had tried to pay for pay for as well. Um, but my student stipend, I believe it was about fourteen thousand dollars a year. so really not not much to live on beyond rent. And so, you know, this is something that, you know, I just kind of had to like, when I started working full time after graduating from that master's degree, I really had to put my foot down and really focus on paying that off. Because like you said, like, you know, you hit limits on it. I, I you know, I was um, maybe 23 at that point. 24. And I just, I, my credit limits were super low, which was good. I didn't want to like rack up a whole ton of debt, but it really was a time for me to figure out how to manage it and how to manage it with my first job. Um, my first job, my first full-time job, um, I was a teacher and I didn't make more than 40,000 my first year teaching. So I had to just budget and figure out how to, manage with a you know just a, like a, a salary that was just you know new to me um and a, but also debt that was new to me so i had to buy a car to get to my job uh, i had to you know i i had a, a different apartment i wanted to live on my own cuz it had been many years of living with many roommates and you know for my own mental health i i needed to live alone so it's just things like that that and eventually you get through it and my husband and I, you know, definitely had different fluctuations in our debt at different times. Um, And we saw, you know, yeah, like you said, like some sort of like other loan to kind of eat away at the credit card debt. And then we started paying off that debt, um, you know, through whatever financing we had. Um, So, I mean, I, I think my point in relaying this and my point in asking you this is because I think it's great to have full transparency and understanding that we all grew through you know, waves and phases with managing debt and personal finance. Um, and I I also think it's important to mention that um, I, and this is something that really probably also speaks to what Liza segment mentioned, you know, the whole idea of just like the hustle, like how many times I've hustled like in grad school, like I had the graduate assistantship, but then I also had part a part-time job on the side that I had to do each week. And I was managing a thesis and I babysat as well. I mean, there are so many ways in which I just worked myself to the bone in graduate school. And I really wished, um that wasn't the case. But I think in retrospect, I just tried to find a balance for what made sense for me. And in my mind, my balance was... Let me work hard now to the bone, <laughs> and then hopefully I'll graduate with less debt. But, you know, it's definitely not an easy decision, and it's not a decision that people should take lightly, We you know, one way or another. So I appreciated hearing about the different ways in which you try to kind of cut back on your debt. And I think that, yeah, we, I wish that people who listened to this podcast had just opportunities to think about ways to pay back their debt or just ways to, you know, just the many multiple ways there are of handling situations such as these and that there's no right or wrong answer. There's so much personal trauma around finance. And so I really appreciate this safe space. We're having this conversation. I hope people feel that way too.
1: Yeah. I hope, I hope the same. It is really hard for me I'm better at it now, but it was something that really like held me down for a long time, feeling incompetent around money, having the student loans thing actually work was really affirming. But the more and more I hear stories, I feel like I would not recommend that path to anybody to like rely on that working out because it's meant for it to fail. And I just yeah. see people stuck, but yeah, and I think we need to end with the cliffhanger of how much money you think I got paid
2: my first year. Oh, no. (laughs) no.
0: (laughs) That'll be
1: our second money episode.
2: Yes, actually, we yeah, I think that would be a great way to kick off our next episode. You know, there's so much that we just don't know and you can't predict. And, you know, at the same time, I think to 24 years old, I mean, your brain was just almost done developing. (laughs) I I turned 24 the day after graduation. Wow. Mm -hmm. I had a master's degree and I couldn't even rent a car. Well, I think this has been a really great conversation. I really hope people walk away feeling a little bit seen or, you know, at least um, just a different vantage point at looking at the whole situation about what it looks like to get through graduate school um but please stay tuned we'll we will be back soon with an episode about jobs and wages and talking about job negotiation um especially for our bilingual slps because we are amazing people um so thank you for this conversation thank you Thank you for
1: listening and supporting the Bold SLP Collective. You can find a closed captioned version of this podcast on our YouTube channel. We will also have show notes on our website. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you do all the podcast things. Follow, subscribe, download, and review. And don't forget, we love hearing from you. So connect with us on Instagram at the Bold SLP Collective. Stay bold and humble.
0: See you next time.